This talk was recorded at the 2019 Actuarial Society of South Africa Convention at the Sandton Convention Centre. For more information on the Actuarial Society, visit actuarialsociety.org.za. So thanks for joining us for this session. I think this is one of the investment sessions uh, of, of the convention. And I think what's really great is I think we've got two great speakers lined up with two good topics. Um, so I think just to uh, reiterate, if you could just switch off your cell phones on silent uh, so we can actually have a you know, focused um, uh, session over here. The way we're going to do it is we're going to, and we're actually quite lucky because um, Sean, Sean Leverton, and I'll give an introduction in a moment, it's, uh, it's a Jewish holiday today. So, and he's, uh, but despite that, he's breaking the rules, so don't tell anyone. <laughs> I don't know if that's allowed, <laughs> but I think um, you know today was the day set for his for his paper. So I think we're going to let him go first. Um, it's a twenty-minute session, TED-style talk, and I think we all know how uh, you know Sean likes to keep us uh, entertained, and I think he can he can you know put some complex topics in a, in a very interesting interesting way. Um, and then when Sean's done, we'll move on to the next speaker that I'll that I'll introduce to you. So I think to get going, and I'm actually glad that people weren't too um, fearful of coming into this session, because I think when you read the, this paper was uh, authored by, by Sean, and um, you know, he's no uh, stranger to the, the convention. He's actually submitted a, a number of papers over the years and contributed towards the society and uh, I think the knowledge and what we do in, in South Africa. His co-author is Suley Sahim, and I hope I got that right. Um, but I think what, hope, what maybe got people a bit scared is uh, it was peer-reviewed by Rob Thompson. I'm glad to see he's here. So, and um, my understanding from Sean is there was also um, you know, some key input from, from Wilkie in the UK. Um, so I think a lot of great minds have actually contributed towards this paper. Um, so just to introduce Sean, and then I'll quickly introduce his paper. So... Sean is the Chief Operating Officer and uh, co-founder of Colorfield Liability Solutions, and that's a liability-driven investment business in South Africa, um, and I'm sure most of you, you know, are quite familiar. And he's quite passionate about liability-driven investing, uh, creating bespoke solutions for, for clients. And also many years ago, he also, I think when he was at, at Alexander Forbes, he also led a lot of the development uh, in terms of uh, product and also some of the modeling, uh, things like, uh, you know, in the early days when we did uh, asset liability modeling. And it's great to see how things have uh, progressed beyond that. So Sean's paper is the, it's titled The Stochastic Investment Model for South African Use. And I think in chatting to Sean, the rationale behind the paper is that there's, there's not enough in South Africa in terms of research around asset liability modeling. Um, as a practitioner in the industry, I know that I don't think we use these types of models enough. And even when you start using it, you realize there are a number of issues that you need to consider. And I think it's core to actuarial, the types of models that you use, your data, uh, the selection of parameters, how that is. Because again, garbage in, garbage out. And I've seen many models come up with weird and wonderful <laughs> you know, answers with this. So this is the first attempt to kind of, let's take stochastic uh, modeling to the next level, increase transparency, and also the, the body of research in South Africa around this uh, specific topic. So I think without any further ado, I'd like to th thank Sean for being here, and uh, we're in your hands. Okay. Thanks, John. John and I did our professionalism course together. We qualified it act as actuaries at the same time, so it's an honor to be introduced by him. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for coming. I literally 10 minutes ago, I was standing outside with the colleagues by the door. There was nobody in this room. I had people walking past, giving me this, looking down on the floor saying, I'm sorry, we're going to Warren's session. It's the only other retirement session. So it's fantastic to see you here. I can only conclude you here to watch Anne straight afterwards. Um, so hopefully mine is entertaining. When I put the topic through,
I was told by the conveners they know about this topic and you are not getting a full session by yourself. You're going to get a TED style talk and TED talks are interesting. So you can make this interesting. So I'm going to do my best to do so uh, in the time that I have with you right now. So as John mentioned, uh, my first job was at Alexander Forbes and I was actually hired to be a personal assistant to an individual named Andrew Crawford. Uh, who's still in the industry today. On the very first day that I joined Alexander Forbes, uh, some, the guy who headed up stochastic modeling at Alexander Forbes quit. He was the only actuary in the business who had an idea of how these models worked. It was the early 2000s, and I was quickly brought upstairs to his office, and I was told you ne he needs to transfer all the information he knows about stochastic models in 30 days. Um, and so began my baptism by fire and introduction to the world of stochastic asset uh, liability modeling and uh, everything that came from them. So I'm incredibly grateful for what uh, economic modeling has done for, for my career. Now, in the time that I've been introduced to uh, stochastic modeling, I've seen all types of models. I've seen very simple, uh, normal, normally distributed Excel spreadsheets, and I've seen very complicated models used by Nobel Prize laureates. And the next video was kind of like a, a big takeaway that I think that one can apply to this world of uh, stochastic models. Plain jazz. Plain jazz. Smoothie. Making smoothie. Calendar. No meetings today. Remember, dentist at 9.30. Fire off. Fire off. Open door. Door open. And we're going to do one more. Fire. Open door. Wrong voice command. Open door. Wrong voice command. Open. Open door. Repeat that. Open door? I didn't understand that. Hey, open door! Play on the floor. Sing on the floor. Open the door! Open the door! Open the door! Error. Hey, you're a rock. Open door. So as long as it works, these models are unbelievable, but you make them too complicated and it can all fall apart. Um, and I think that's a key takeaway that I've taken out over the years. So as we sit today, um, many years on from the times when my colleagues would have called it voodoo, there's an actuary, a very prominent actuary used to call it uh, voodoo and black magic, this, this uh, asset liability modeling. Um, there continues to be a need for these models, whether it's for pricing, whether it's set by regulation, setting reserves, uh, optimizing portfolios, understanding risk, explaining variability, asset liability modeling or, or economic scenario generators are very required today. And we know that the first published actuarial model on this work was done by uh, Wilkie back in 1986. And since then, these models have been updated and extended. Now, if you were like me, the very first question that you had when you, st when you studied this, and this is if you studied from 1990, was do I need to learn all of the long formula for the Wilkie model and the term structure models? And you had all these complicated models out there, and you basically made sure you, you, you knew the basics. But the truth is that limited research has been done in South Africa, as, as John mentioned a moment ago. The seminal paper was done by Professor Thompson. Thank you for, for coming to the session. It does make me slightly more nervous, but also means that you're here to answer the more complicated questions that might come. Um, but the model he proposed by his own account had a number of practical limitations. In fact, he taught me uh, his, his model. Um, so the, the Wilkie model was the first comprehensive stochastic model for actuarial applications. It has a cascade structure, price, uh, the price inflation is the driving force, and he used yearly data. Now what's quite interesting is that he used data from 1919 to 1982, and I'll come back a little bit later as to why, why that's of relevance today, um, and it, it was for long-term forecasting. The published model by Prof. Thompson 
was also a cascade structure, it also used uh, various drivers, but he had only 33 years worth of data. He did extend the model um, into an equilibrium model, and I know that he would want me to mention that there is a difference between no arbitrage pricing models, equilibrium models, that type of thing. That goes beyond the scope of my talk today, but something that we will uh, address in the academic literature. The aim of today's session, and it's not to go into the formula and to the, the, the subtleties and the complex uh, mathematics, that I invite you to, to, to uh, make contact with me afterwards. It's to propose an open source, real-world stochastic investment model for South Africans to use. I recently got contacted by a professor uh, from the university in, in UCT. He had a number of students working on uh, asset liability models and they could not find something academically credible that they could use in the application of the research. And this is what this is meant to be. It's meant to be a platform that people here and, and in the industry can use to extend on, to critique, um, and hopefully it's an evolution, uh, it's an open paper and we can present iterations of it in, in years to come and we can add authors onto it and we propose something that can be used in the industry. So as a first stab, I made contact with uh, Sule Sain, who's at the University of Liverpool. I did that because I was hoping that she would invite me to come and uh, work over there and I could go and watch a football game on the weekend. She did do the offer, but I haven't been able to get my colleagues to sign off on the expense yet. So she came here, um, that, that they said was cheaper. So we, we proposed a stochastic model, and in it we model price inflation, short and long-term interest rates, inflation and bonds have been introduced, um, and local equity returns. We'll, of course, uh, add some other variables, which I'll talk a bit, out, a, bit a little later. Now, the, uh, Thompson's model had data from 1960 to 1993, so 33 years worth of data. Granger and Newbold say that that is just not enough data for long-term projections or forecasting. You need to have at least 45 to 50 observations. As we sit today with data from 1960, we now have 68 years worth of data in South Africa to be used. In fact, we have more data points than Wilkie had in when he proposed his model initially. So we sit in a much better position for the purposes of coming up with a long-term model. So the main contribution of the paper is this updated data set, as well as incorporating inflation-linked uh, bonds into the analysis. So we use data uh, all the way through. Obviously, inflation-linked data, uh, bond data only comes from 2000. Some of the data is very easy to get, like the inflation data. You can write to Stats South Africa, and they very kindly will send you a spreadsheet going back all the way to 1960 with all the monthly points. Data like equities is, is a little bit more complicated um, because we had data being maintained by INET up until a point, and then that's been taken over by IRIS, and there was a change in the indices that were used. So more detail on that is available um, from me. You can, you can contact me directly, but we did create a new uh, publicly available data set using uh, equity data that is out there using the JSC Actuaries All Share Index, uh, the CI101 codes that was originally proposed by Prof. Thompson, and then updating it with J203 returns. I see George is in, in the audience. He helped me a lot with the data manipulation, so thank you, George. Uh, Long-term interest-bearing securities, we use the JSC Actuaries Long Bond Yield. Um, code is JYC20. That's still available today. Short-term interest rates, we, you, we've got the Alexander Forbes Money Market Index, previously known as the Ginsburg Milan Carson's Money Market Index. And then ILBs from 2000, we have our issuances and we've taken the yields since then. Um, and obviously as issuances were introduced, we, we were able to have a richer data set over there. So this is the cascade structure of the model. The key driver at the top is price inflation. That has an input into the level of shared dividends and shared dividend yields. Um, which together inform your share prices. And then there's this relationship between inflation, uh, long-term, short-term interest rates, and inflation and bond rates. So this is, this is the descriptor over there. What, what you can see is that your uh, share dividends have inputs from both um, price inflation and share dividend yields, which means you need a lot more data to model share dividends and by extension share prices. And we, we need a lot less data to, to put together a model for the various interest rates and what will happen will be yield curves. So I'm not going to put equations for every one of these drivers out there. I thought I'll do it for price inflation. Those that are interested can then read the model. There's a, there's a paper that is available for, for download. 
um, and you, you can work through it. So we start off with modeling price inflation, and this is modeled as an AR1 model. Um, and we, we model the force of inflation, which is the difference between the logarithms of inflation each year. And what you'll see, um, you can see on this graph over here, is that from 2000, we have inflation targeting that came in. It didn't work too well when it spiked up um, in, in the late 2000s, but overall we've been between the target band over here. So there are a few things when we look at the model, and this, this is going to be the most technical of the slide, well not that one, that's the actual equation, um, but in terms of the slides that we'll talk about is, are these parameters that come through over here. It is an excellent model. You can see that by looking at um, the statistical significance. You can see things like the skewness is minus 0.1, close to zero. Uh, the kurtosis is 2.8, close to three, which is like a normal distribution. That's what you want to see over there. And then when you look at the various parameters, your mu, your a, and your sigma, they are incredibly um, significant. So why is that important? It's important because we, we know that with a lot of certainty we can start to uh, model going forwards or predict what might happen. Um, now, the things to, to look at is the, that value for mu is uh, 0.0809. Do we think in the long term inflation is going to be as high as 8%? Absolutely not. You know, that's a parameter that was skewed by the data that was, was there previously. That's not the important variable to infer. What we're um, more interested in is the volatility, because even though we've had a change in the level of inflation, the actual volatility has been relatively uh, constant through time, and we see this when we analyze parameter stability. So I think that's another introduction that we brought into the model, is we've got a long enough data set to say, well, let's say we looked at 25 points ending in 2018, or we only look at the first 25, next 30, next 35 points starting in 1960, how different would the parameters be? And obviously what you're looking for is that you're immune um, to different time periods and that the parameters tend to hold. So if we look here at, um, let's actually look at the sigma, because that's important, we've got two sets of lines over there. We've got a, a dark uh, line that's uh, and, and a confidence interval around that. So those are the dots, and we've got a light line that's next to it. So the dark line or the heavy lines start in 1960 and end in a given year. The thinner lines uh, show periods ending in 2018. So the the one side is where is is the data set starting in the beginning, and the other one is is where it's ending. And we see that the more data we introduce, the more uh, predictable the parameters become. And even though this looks like it's, it's quite wide, if you actually look at the axes, there isn't that much difference. You know, if you use 0.022 or 0.023, it's not going to make a major change in the model, and we start getting the predictability to come through. And that was a feature when we started to model a lot of the, the various parameters that are out there. So for example, all the various uh, factors. So your dividend yields were the same type of thing. Um, as well as uh, your interest rates, which we'll see a little bit later. So when it came to modeling the shared dividend yields, we fitted several models, um, and the ones that fitted best had, a, had a, an autoregressive and an inflation effect. What the models or the paper will show you is the various models that were looked at for various variables and why we chose or recommend the ones that we ultimately did. That's, that's, when you do time series modeling, you'll see that there isn't one model out there that might work. You have to try many, many models to try and get it. Of course, we had the benefit of having uh, Professor Wilkie be involved in the actual working part of it, um, and then Professor Thompson gave the, the model a review afterwards. So, same with the shared dividends. The shared dividends was, was the one that was the hardest to get um, the parameters for. You need a lot more data, as I said earlier, because you're estimating six parameters to ultimately get it. Now, when looking at the long-term interest rates, we can clearly see a relationship between inflation, the, the, the bold line, uh, long-term uh, interest rates, short-term interest rates, and index-linked bonds. Uh, they follow each other over here. And what we've done is we've actually put in economic theory. The, the Fisher relation has actually been explicitly brought into our modeling to say that there is a difference between nominal bonds um, and inflation and the level of real yields that's been brought in. And obviously parameters to constrain uh, certain yields, like nominal yields, to not be negative. Um, that, that's been brought in as, uh, in terms of our constraints. So we've, we model the long-term interest rates. Again, all parameters are significant. 
All of this stuff is easily codable. I know this because I asked George, who joined us earlier this year, who's a student. I said, you take this model and see if you can do it, and he could do it. And George is very bright, but I'm sure those of you that have been working with it for longer um, would be able to do the same thing, build up your, your own models to be able to do it. Uh, Short-term interest rates we modeled, same sort of thing. Um, and there was a clear connection with long-term interest rates, as you would expect. So this is what I'm saving you from. This is what I was told in a dry run. People don't like to go into too much detail. So, but it is there for further reference. I put this here just with the inflation and bonds to show you just how many different models. Each of those columns represents the different models with different parameters. There's lots of different failed attempts. I felt like you know, Edison with a light bulb, you know, going through the models and keep changing it and changing it and changing it. What you're seeing are the winners over here. And obviously what, what uh, each of the winners then went through to have a look at were, are those parameters stable through time and we believe they are. We believe that what we have at the end is for these variables and these models, a fairly credible um, model that can be used for the applications. Uh, of course, it, you've got to be quite mindful of what you're using it for. You've got to understand the parameters. You, you don't take them blindly over the full year's worth of data. But it, it is something that can be used in terms of your own house view assumptions and brought in and hopefully give you uh, sensible results that you can compare with models that you're probably using already. Future work, um, and this is stuff that's actually started to happen, just not in time uh, for the paper or the presentation today, is to introduce a real yield curve model when you're starting to value liabilities, which is relevant in, in our world, uh, mine in particular, you need to have where real rates might be. And so we, we're looking at um, various maturities of those bonds and a descriptive yield curve model which will be used um, to, to be added in and its relationship with the various variables that have been modeled already and applying principal components analysis and we'll explore the bi-directional relation. Um, so the conclusions in terms of taking us through what you've seen over here is that we think that this is a stochastic investment model that can be used um, for, the, for the industry. It has updated the data. If anyone has any ideas as to better data sets, um, more than welcome to contact us and we, we can update our analysis, but we think it's, it's quite robust. Um, and we also think that the codes we put forward means that those wanting to update it themselves or replicate it or do it have the ability to do so. Um, this does have long-term applications in both the insurance sector and in pension funds. <clears throat> we compared several models and we did the, all the various statistical tests for independence and normality and ARCH. Uh, we incorporated economic theory like the Fisher relation um, and the models fit well and the residuals are normally distributed. Um, parameter stability uh, should be analyzed in detail and what we're going to look to do is to combine the yield curve model um, with this and the other economic series and then we can bring in say international uh, models in terms of allocations to offshore assets. But that, that in a nutshell is uh, what was there. There's a lot of references um, if you want to look at it and this is a lot of uh, work that continues to be done in this field as it evolves. So thank you. Sean, thanks so much. Um, I'd like to just check in terms of um, questions. I think while we have Sean here, I think thanks, Sean. I think that was. I think you can all agree. I mean, this is quite a lot of credible work. I think a lot, of, lot has gone into it, and it's good to see that you know some of the best minds really reviewing it. And uh, I think we obviously look forward to to more of it. And I was just, um, you know, while everyone else gets their questions ready, I mean, did you guys? coded in R that's it's now available for everybody, the, the open source. Everything's <laughs> available for a cost. No, no, <laughs> no I, think, I think that's, uh, that's certainly something we can, we can debate, is, is to make it available. It's not, it's not complicated, and I'm happy to, uh, for us to, to share that. Uh, John did ask me if there were any audience poll questions before. Um, and I said, you know, the ones that came to mind is who read the paper before? Please don't answer because I, I don't want to see the, you might take out someone's eyes, you raise your hands. Um, but, hope, but hopefully if I had to ask a question now, who might be of uh, interest or to ask somebody in your teams to look at it or if uh, the ideas come up, the, the point of today was really to um, lead you to, to that piece of work and hopefully um, get you to that next part. And of course, a, a spreadsheet that does all the work for you that makes it easier. <laughs> Are there any any questions? Okay, we've got one at the back. There's some roving mics. Thank you. I think when talking, if you could just uh, you know introduce yourself and then the the question or comment. Thanks. Brendan Howie from Stanford. 
Ah, recognize him. <laughs> Does it have an impact on the dividend model if we see that become more prevalent in South Africa as opposed to, you know, you reduce the number of shares and that drives equity prices as opposed to paying out dividends and growing dividends? Have you, have you guys thought about that? And I haven't read the paper. <laughs> do is look at how things have moved in, in the long term um, and, and what has been normal behavior. So not, not what is a normal uh, dividend yield or what is a uh, normal growth. It's, it's really just to understand the relationship between the various, say, equities and, and the other asset classes or what drives uh, dividends. And if there is a fundamental change, and this is a, a point that Professor Thompson actually did make to us, is to actually say, well, how much of the past is going to happen again into the future? So to the extent that we see things are different, you can't blindly go and take a model that was based on how, how things worked one way. So you know, if we've got confidence that inflation might work and it's the, the, the targeting regime hasn't changed, certainly the volatility that we saw pre-inflation targeting and afterwards, but the level of, of inflation has changed. Certainly with buybacks, if it, if it has that big an impact on the levels that are out there, we would have to incorporate it. But at this stage, I'd be skeptical that it would be that different on a long-term basis for, for projections. But of course, we'd need to be mindful. Particularly in view of my uh, involvement both with you as a, an, a master's student and with Shule in uh, examining her doctorate at Harriet Watt. Um, and it was good to see you come together. What I think we have here is a culmination of, a, um, of the Wilkie type of models. I, I, I like to call my version the Model T. Um, which I think more or less dates it. Um, and uh, so I think going forward, you mentioned the, the need to consider how the future is going to be different from the past. Um, and I think that's a new direction that we need to take um, and, and model our uncertainties um, with a, in a Bayesian framework. Um, and, and the work that is being do, done here can be used as um, a prior distribution in the Bayesian framework so that you actually um, then stand back and say, okay, let's update our Bayesian framework year by year. And I think this gives us an anchor to start from. Uh, we, we, we're in a, situa a situation where the future is going to be very different from the past, I believe, um, more so than futures have been different from the past in the past. Um, so it's, and we have these uncertainties that we've got to deal with. And uh, this gives us firm ground for that part of the question that um, relates to the frequentist approach to probability distributions. Um, and uh, we must proceed with the application of a Bayesian framework that will allow us to uh, introduce um, a, a way of updating our uh, judgment from time to time from this point onwards. I'd be interested in your comments. I think that that is something that we debated as co-authors once you had put the comment through to us and something that no doubt we do in our day-to-day -day work. Clients, whether this is ultimately application, want to know, but will this happen? I think anybody who's used a model in the past who's shown that there's a probability that an equity strategy might fail, when you do have a year like last year or the scenario doesn't quite work out the way, they quickly forgot that there was a tail end to the distribution. So, you know, understanding that things might not be the way the model predicts or that the uncertainty might, might change is, is obviously key. Um, what we wanted to do was to lay that first uh, platform, that foundation, something that just works based on the theory that's out there, a Wilkie type model that is credible, um, and then use this potentially as something as a springboard for future research, exactly in the lines as you've discussed. So thank you so much for the contribution now and for reviewing the paper. The comment, um, you know, also leads us nicely into one of the questions that I, I had, Sean, is, um, and also speaking to a lot of practitioners out there. Um, my sense is, uh, I think, it, 
at this stage, I mean, we're not using these types of models sufficiently in, in, in practice. I mean, the models that I've seen are maybe, they don't stack up to this level of uh, scrutiny, review, checking, um, and there's still a lot of use of deterministic. And when things are used, it's often, you know, very basic, normal stuff uh, in Excel. I mean, what is, what is your sense and, um, you know, as to where to from here? I think, unfortunately, we, we, we do see a lot of deterministic modeling, especially people retiring. Um, you get planners who sit down and they show you the million rand fund credit lasting until you're 90. Of course, there's no variability in it. It's just a static draw um, and, and return assumption. And it's very dangerous, and you need to be able to show the variability there. Um, but equally, we've seen very complicated models being imported from other, other jurisdictions or practitioners selling it through to institutions, but it's a black box. You, can, you might be able to have some input in, through into some of the means, but you actually have no idea what's been modeled underneath, but they tell you it's been updated. And I think it's very difficult to have a sense of comfort as to what's there, because they're very nervous and skittish to reveal more, because that's ultimately their IP and what distinguishes them, and they don't want it out there. So this is not to put them out of business. It's really just to allow us as a profession to take charge of something that really is part of the actuarial skill set. Um, and, and I think that whilst not everybody in the room um, wants to get their hands dirty with the technical side, we, everybody here can add input in terms of what are the reasonable projections, assumptions, does it make sense, what, what, what variables are impacting on others, and, and have uh, members in the team do, do the, the getting their hands dirty. Even I didn't code uh, the models, I got George to do it, so you know, even if, you, if you're in there. So I think it's, it's a great for a team-based approach. Um, I actually didn't put my contact details in the slides, but it's fairly easy to, to look me up if you remember Colorfield. Um, and please do reach out. This is not done in our capacity um, as an institution, but rather as an academic uh, paper for, for the purposes of the profession. Thank you. Great. Now, thank you so much, uh, Sean. All right. Um, I think what we'd like to do now is just, uh, you know, just to move things in a different different direction. Um, so I think that was quite a good introduction. Just looking at, you know, the variability and uncertainty that, that we face, uh, you know, these days. And what we have seen over the last number of years is the pro pro proliferation of. Um, index-based um, investment strategies, uh, in particular smart beta, so, or termed smart beta, and different varieties of that, either you know, basic versions or um, you know, the use of artificial intelligence with various uh, algorithms and learning you know, associated with that and very, you know, to various, uh, and various sophistication. Um, I think the issue is that I think in South Africa it's still early days in terms of those particular um, investment strategies. I mean, we still see in South Africa uh, a lot of use of balanced funds, active management, and um, we also see the regulators saying, you know, why haven't fees come down? Uh, why aren't we looking at other things? Um, and Smart Beta is one of those examples that could be used to actually capture uh, alpha and, um, and various things at a more cost-effective. Uh, and, and I think to introduce the, the subject, so uh, our next paper is, is about specifically Smart Beta, and um, our speaker is Anne Sebastian. She is a portfolio manager at Stanlib uh, Investments, uh, and she's responsible for the management of the quantitative funds and in index tracking funds. She's got a number of years' experience in the, in the industry, and she's the lead portfolio manager for the Stanlib Multifactor Fund uh, and the Smart Beta Funds. And um, they've put together quite a nice presentation, which, is, which I think is quite topical, just around South Africa and whether Smart Beta is, is good and fit for purpose over here. Um, so, Anne, thanks for joining us, uh, and we look forward to, to your talk. For that um, introduction. So, as John mentioned, I'm Anne from Stanlib, and I look after all our systematic kind of investing, passive, active, quant, as well as our balance funds. Um, in today's discussion, I'd like to get into a real application of factor investing in South Africa. Are there technical issues? <laughs> okay. Maybe I'm just too short. <laughs> 
Um, so I'll be talking about a real application of factor investing in South Africa. Now, over the recent years, as John mentioned, there has been a clear rise in interest and allocation to factor strategies, both globally and locally. In fact, in the global context, almost 60% of institutional investors have allocated to factor strategies, be it smart beta or multi-factor funds, there have been clear allocations to the space. We've also seen that it's been across the globe. In Europe, many countries in Europe, in UK, and in America, there have been clear allocations to the space. In South Africa, however, we have seen a clear interest in factor strategies, but the allocations have not been as aggressive. And in my opinion, that's been because of two reasons. The first is there's still a perception that the South African equity market is unique. There are unique aspects to our market that makes us different to the global context, that makes the production of realistic factor portfolios not possible in South Africa. The second part is a lot of the research has been highly academic, based on paper portfolio returns or back-tested returns. Clients are taking a wait and see. Let's see if when actual money or real money is implemented in these factor strategies, if you can still see the performance that has been previously communicated. So during this talk, I'd like to share some insight about some myths and misconceptions about our market. I'll also show you some actual performance, the standard multi-factor funds, actual performance, and give you some insight on how factor investing is used to build factor portfolios in South Africa. So for some of you who don't know factor investing, considering I am talking to a crowd of actuaries, um, what is factor investing? Factor investing is investing in the broad, persistent drivers of returns in the market. Um, through our analysis in Stanlib, we have seen that the persistent drivers of returns in our market is growth, quality, momentum, analyst sentiment, and valuation. And what is factor investing? Factor investing is simply investing in companies based on how well they score or rank on these persistent drivers of returns or factors. So if a company ranks well or highly on the factor, that is a company that will be bought up or held in an overweight position in our fund. Now, why should you care? In the context of today's discussion, I've listed a couple of reasons why you should care. The cost is definitely a valid argument, but I've thought of touching on the Norwegian pension fund case. Because this, for me, is really where factor investing went from being theoretical to the real application of factor investing in investments. Now, the Norwegian Pension Fund, for those of you who don't know, this was a 200 billion US dollar pension fund in 2006. Three months into the 08 crisis, it lost almost 15% of its AUM. So a study was commissioned to understand why this happened. The outcome of the study said that although this pension fund was well diversified in terms of it having all the broad asset classes, equity, bonds, property, um, private equity, in terms of its factor exposure, it was not diversified. All the managers within each of these asset classes underperformed the market because they all had exposure to the same factors. So this is why we think it's really important to understand what is actually driving your active manager's performance. Factor investing is sort of seen as the best of both. Um, it's passive-like in the sense that it's offered at lower costs. It is a systematic or rules-based approach to investments, but it's active-like in the sense that the objective of the fund is to give you market-beating returns in the long term. Now, one of the arguments said against factor portfolios in South Africa is the South African market is unique. Um, the South African market is highly concentrated with few counters making up the bulk of the index. So it makes it very difficult to build a realistic factor portfolio in our market. So we've looked at how South Africa compares to the rest of the world in terms of how much the top 10 companies by market cap make up in the index. And what we see is that concentrated equity markets are more the rule rather than the exception. South Africa highlighted in black, depending on whether you're looking at the South African capped index with NASPERS at about 15% or uncapped, kind of fits into this theme. We're not unique in the context of having a concentrated equity market. There are many markets that are concentrated. Markets like Europe, um, UK, Australia, America, these are, these are markets where fact strategies have taken off. And South Africa is not unique in the aspect that it has a concentrated market. Concentrated markets are more the rule rather than the exception. 
Now further on to this point, um, we want to look at is this concentration an issue for factor managers only? So what we did is we looked at all the AUM in South Africa that's allocated to the equity uh, market, and we looked at how mandates are issued in the space. And what we saw is that 64% of the AUM is allocated by mandate or not um, by index cognizance. Why, does, why is that important? This is important because, for example, an asset owner would give money to an asset manager and say, we want to see if you can give us alpha. Show us that you can provide alpha relative to the index or the market cap um, index. And then the asset manager would need to prove or show through performance that they can, in fact, beat the index by deciding which companies could to go overweight and which companies to go underweight. Now, if you look at the average realized tracking error in the space, in this retirement active equity space, it's on average 3%. Now, at 3%, you're not getting far off from the concentration in the market. We all active managers, whether factive, factor managers, or traditional fundamental managers, have to deal with the concentration in our market, take the right bets to prove that we can provide alpha to our clients. This is not an issue for just uh, factor managers. It's an issue for all active managers who need to prove that they can provide alpha. So to prove to you the next natural question is, can you build an index cognizant factor portfolio? And this is a slide that I've been told that I'm product pushing here, but this is what I have on my hands. Um, so this is a standard multi-factor funds performance. This is an index cognizant factor portfolio. We use a multi-factor investment approach, the factors that I mentioned before, to beat the benchmark or the index, which is a CAPSWIX index. Um, over the past three years, we have been able to provide alpha to our client. Um, our client in this portfolio has a very high, very low uh, relative risk appetite. And over the past three years, we've kept within the 2% um, relative risk that we can take. And our ranking versus traditional fundamental active managers, we've been a top quartile performer on a one and three year basis. Again, this is a fund that is index cognizant that uses a multi-factor approach to deliver on its client's objectives. This is not back-tested returns. This is actual performance. We run uh, $4 billion, so it's actual money in, in this portfolio. Now, naturally, for a, a factor investor or a multi-factor fund, an important component is deciding how much to allocate to the various factors. And on this slide, I've listed uh, four of the common approaches to identifying or determining how to allocate to the various factors. The first is valuation. It's a fairly easy one to understand. If a factor is cheap relative to its history and relative to other factors, then that factor, if you're just looking at valuation, should get a big allocation um, relative to the other factors. The second is trend. Now, this is where you're looking at the momentum of the factor. So you look at momentum of value, momentum of growth, momentum of quality. Um, naturally, if a factor has been trending recently, then you would want to allocate more to the factor that has been recently trending. The third, not very common, this is dispersion. Um, so this looks at, within the factor, how different are the companies. So if, for example, uh, companies are looking very different in our market on the dividend yield factor, for example, then you want to give a bigger allocation to dividend yield because that means there's more alpha opportunity because the companies are looking so much more different. The final one is what we would call a top-down um, component. We look at the macro environment. What does the macro environment imply for the performance of the various factors? And it's number four that I would like to spend more detail on. Um, so we've done a lot of work to build a proprietary macro indicator. And this macro indicator utilizes machine learning models to and, and uses macroeconomic data, data like PMI, new housing orders, um, money supply, all the kind of data that an economist and a macro specialist would use, but we implemented in a systematic manner to identify what are we going, what phase are we going to in the future, because the different phases of the economy have an impact on the factor performance. To give you an example, for example, in slowdown, we see that the factor that performs the best in a slowdown phase is the quality factor. 
because investors fly to the safety of good quality companies. During an expansionary phase, we see momentum is the best performing factor. In a contractionary phase, we have seen that growth and quality are the best performers. And in recovery, there's only one factor that performs in recovery. All other factors actually struggle during this period, and this is value. So the really deep, out-of-favor companies, when people feel more positive about the future macro environment, that's when value companies um, rally. Um, this macro indicator, we looked at, we have built both a US macro indicator, that is the one that we've shown here, as well as a South African macro indicator. Unfortunately, the South African macro indicator for the past five years didn't go anywhere. It just kept on spitting between um, recovery and contraction. So we didn't see it as a useful input into our process in identifying which factor to tilt for. And to just give you some sort of evidence that this has been able to guide us to the right factors in the past three years. So if you look at last year, last year the model, it was, um, there was mostly more orange bubbles, implying we're going into a slow down phase. And that year quality was the best performer and the rest of factors didn't provide as good returns, but positive returns. Um, in 2017, we saw more bu uh, blue bubbles, which meant that we're going into an expansion phase, and the best performer in that, um, in that year was momentum. The rest of the factors did half as well. In the recovery phase, i.e. the green bubbles, the only performing factor at that point is cyclical value and defensive value. All other factors struggled. What's interesting about our market is that um, value performance is always when there's a recovery, but it's very sharp and short-lived. But we've seen a lot of active managers, however, love their value kind of investing. But if you really look at it, value only performs very sharp, very short-lived, and it's very hard to time. I mean, 20, the 2016 value um, forecast was in line with the Trump trade. So you are saying that although these factors are all long-term persistent drivers of returns, year on year you do see different factors performing differently to others. So um, this is um, the current allocation, current factor allocation in our fund. Um, quality is our biggest allocation, followed by growth, then momentum, sentiment, and defensive value. Um, quality and growth right now, a part of that is because um, the macro environment is on the more late cycle of um, of uh, the macro phase. Um, we look in, in, in StanLab at all four components when we decide how to allocate to these various factors. And then now just to bring some how do you bring this, how do you actually use fact investing to build a portfolio? Because at the end of the day, we are portfolio managers and we are stock picking at the end of the day based on these factors. So um, on this slide, I've shown the various factors that um, we believe are the persistent drivers of long-term returns in our market. And the, the weights that I've uh, previously communicated is there. So how does uh, a building a factor portfolio work? Well, you'll rank the companies in our market based on how well they score on these various factors. Um, what's unique about our approach is we don't think that you should be, you should be, we believe that you should be taking a sector neutral approach. And what that means is you should find the best, um, the best company in general minor, the best bank in, 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 in the banking sector, um, the best insurer, etc. So find the best companies within the sectors and identify those best companies based on these multiple factors. So for example, in the general minor sector, we like Kumba. Kumba ticks all the boxes. So even if we were equal weighting, we would like Kumba. Um, Capitec in the banks, although it is uh, slightly more expensive on all other factors and based on the weightings we give the factors, it has a high multi-factor score in the bank sector. Um, if I go to to Clicks, for example, that is a great quality and growth company. So although, again, it's expensive, on a multi-factor score, it would still rank highly. Astral Food is a, a company that we've seen as having really good growth and quality, and this is where the importance comes to the weights of the factors. So although it doesn't rank well on valuation and annual sentiment and price momentum, because it really has strong growth and quality characteristics, it is liked in our consumer goods section. Now to reiterate the, or to make you understand the importance of utilizing a data-driven approach. Um, over the past three years, um, in our market, unfortunately, we have seen many landmines or companies that have had big drops in, in their shares. Um, 
for ESG reasons or for other reasons. Um, and we looked here at what the factor scores were six months prior to the collapse. So it's not after the fact, it's before the fact. Um, and we want to see what was it that resulted in the score being poor and being underweight in majority of these companies. Um, so, for example, Breit in the investment uh, sector scored poorly relative to its peers in investments um, on all factors. So that's naturally a company that we would be underweight. Steinoff, again, what is unique in our process is we use uh, machine learning to identify what are the real sectors. And Randhage was a clear sector from many years um, back. So in the, in the Randhage sector, Steinoff ranked poorly across all these multiple factors. And again, this is a company that naturally we would be underweight. Um, so I've shown a couple of um, these landmines. Uh, Aspen is a company that we were overweight, and you can see why. Um, this company did also have a, a collapse in the share price. So I'm not trying to say that using a multi-factor approach, you can forecast the future landmines. What I'm trying to iterate is the point of taking a purely data-driven approach. We don't speak to management. We don't go to earnings calls. We just look at the data and what does the data imply for the companies. So by taking a purely data-driven approach, identifying what are the peers to the companies, and then looking at underweighting the companies if they don't rank. It's a purely systematic, unemotional approach to investing. There are clear benefits of that. So to summarize, um, I hope I've shown that factor investing is a simple concept. All we do is look at how the companies rank or score to these factors, and then we will buy or sell depending on their ranking to these persistent drivers of returns. Factor investing is already here. Um, we are using, we have been using factor investing in Stanlib for many years now. And I would also say that even if you look at a traditional active manager, in the South African equity market, there are 160 companies. You can't hire an analyst to cover every single company. So you will firstly have to decide on what your philosophy is. Are you a quality manager? Are you a growth manager? That first step where you screen companies out by quality, by growth, is the first step of building a factor portfolio. We're just doing it at lower costs and being very clear and transparent of how we're doing it. The SA market concentration, as I showed, I don't believe that this is an issue for just factor managers. This is an issue for all of us. We will have to deal with the concentration in our market, take the right bets, and provide alpha in the long term. A data-driven approach is is essential because it's an unemotional approach, and I think we're all tired of the emotional sides of investing. But specialists are needed to build and harvest these factor-efficient portfolios. Thank you. And thank you so much. Um, we've got quite a nice bit of time just for questions, and I'm sure there's quite a lot here, because I think this is, this is actually quite a big topic, if I, if I have to have a look. So if you could just indicate the roving mic is at the back, if you have any questions. I think while we, while we get there, I'll just quickly open it up. I think we've got one at the front here. Um, I think, and I mean, obviously, you know, I think there's been a lot of talk around passive investing and of which, you know, factor-based is a version of that. And I think we've also seen things like um, the S&P introducing new indices with ESG factors. I think that's also a factor-based approach. And I think it's all in, it's to try and get the cost down and actually get, you know, the, the, the value still. Why, in your view, are these things not yet you know, taking off in South Africa, and why aren't we yet getting the the fee and fees and scale down? Um, so I think um, to answer your question, it, it really ties to the initial part of the presentation. I think there is still a perception that although these um, strategies have taken off globally, um, the market our market is highly concentrated, and even passive investing or factors investing, it's really hard to do it in our market because a lot of people are trying to get away with the concentration. But then you have indices that have capped indices where NASPAS is controlled for. And anyway, most of the mandates, most of the managers' performance are assessed against these capped indices. And you're not seeing a manager with 0% in NASPAS. So, so I think it's a lack of knowledge sharing. Um, 
I think there has been a clear pickup in these strategies, but not as aggressive as globally. Uh, I think clients are getting interested in having being invested in strategies where they clearly know what is the role that is being taken to deliver the outcome. So that's definitely a positive. And um, the costs are important, but I think there's a lot of um, emotional aspects to I can still find a manager who can outperform, although many, ad many managers actually struggle. So I think those are components that I think people are still getting their head around the space. Um, they are getting interested in the fact that this is at least clear, systematic, it's transparent, you know exactly why a manager is buying into a company, but they're still trying to figure it out if this is, is this, if this is going to have a future in the South African equity market. No, I think there's some good points there, and I think obviously for another day we can discuss, I mean, because I think South Africans generally love active management, the marketing has, has, you know, it's been good over the last few decades. But I think just to open it up to the floor, um, Professor Thompson, you... Yes, I was, I was just wondering if it would make sense to develop time series models based on the factors and then be able to use those time series models for deciding on portfolio. We are seeing, if you think of using time series, time series models for asset allocation purposes and looking at what does valuation and growth imply for the equity asset class, um, there, are, there is a lot of work of looking at time series modeling for, for those kind of investment decisions. Um, but what we're seeing more is that first, let's just show that there is alpha in a systematic manner in the equity asset class, and then we can go into more sophisticated um, analysis. We got one on the side there. Hi. Um, traditionally, in factor investing, size is a key factor. Um, I see it's excluded from your model. Um. There's a couple of factors that we actually excluded in, in the South African market. Uh, one is size, because when you actually implement it and you take the transaction cost into account, the premium is actually not there. Um, another one for interest is low vol. We actually think low vol doesn't work in our market. If you look at low vol's performance in the long term, you see that it was structurally um, overweight the property sector. Now, naturally, to about 2016, if you look at that, um, it would have come out as a good backtest. But that's why it's important to understand what is driving these factors. We take a sector-neutral approach because we think well, you need to be certain what is driving your performance is the factor and not sectors. So size, once you account for transaction costs, we didn't see that as a long-term persistent driver of returns. Another one is low volatility, where if you look at the sector biases in those portfolios, it's not actually the low vol's ability to pick companies, but it's actually that it was structurally in the backtest, always the financial and specifically the property sector that results in this good performance. So again, that's why it's very important to understand what is actually driving your factor portfolio. I've got Janina there in the middle. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Janina Slorsky. Uh, just a comment on downside protection, because I think generally that's a factor used in favour of active management, that active managers will be able to move more quickly when there is a shock to the system. How well have you found you've been able to manage downside when there's shocks which can't be predicted in terms of your modelling? So, I mean, in my opinion... Um if you look at 2016, for example, that was a year where value rallied um, and all the other factors struggled. But if you had just waited it out for six months, the reversal happened and the other factors performed. So in this fund, it's a purely index cognizant portfolio. Um, what we think is absolutely important is just staying true to our investment philosophy and being systematic in our approach. Uh, we've seen that when you try to be very smart and, and figure out that now maybe we're going to a contraction phase, um, let's position differently. Um, it might not necessarily end up that way. So rather just work a lot and do a lot of research on what drives the market and then be systematic in your implementation of that. That kind of emotional aspect of figuring out when that will happen and positioning your portfolio for that in the long term, we actually see that that doesn't deliver good returns. Base, be systematic, straight to, 
to your investment philosophy and in the long term you will be able to see market beating returns. That's the kind of approach we've always taken. We've got one in the middle here. I think while we do that, I think, you know, on the back of some of the, that discussion, I mean, obviously one of the criticisms of uh, factor-based investing is that in order to decide on factors, you've needed, you know, a few decades worth of data to estimate which factors. So there could be, you know, biases in that, is that the right factor, etc. And there could be future factors. So, for example, we know that a lot of information is flowing quicker today uh, via social media, and it's difficult to kind of decipher, is it uh, real or is it not real, fake news, etc. Yet the markets are moving, you know, with that. Do you see, you know, factors evolving over time, new ones, and how would you take that into account? Because, you know, you've got the traditional factors, or do you think those stood the test of time, those will be the ones? So, I mean, we've been running these strategies for about eight years. Um, and what we've seen is the traditional factors, well-researched, um, and ones that we've understood exactly what is driving the returns, they've, at least in the past year, past eight years, they've stayed true. Um, and I think the reason for this is it's not... It's not a free lunch. In the long term, these factors provide you with long-term returns, but year and year you do see different factors performing differently. Um, what we always argue is that it's important to have a sound economic rationale that you buy into. So, for example, the momentum effect, um, the one that I subscribe to in understanding the momentum effect is something called the disposition effect, which is a lot of investors sometimes me included, on my personal account, um, we tend to um, lock in profits of uh, good performing companies too early, and we tend to hold on to companies that have performed poorly um, to break even. Now, do you think as investors that mentality is going to change going forward? I think not. So then I think that momentum factor will continue to prevail. Um, we've also looked at other factors outside the the general perceived factors like analyst sentiment. And what has been interesting in the analyst sentiment um, factors, the ranges there, is that analyst recommendation, i.e. when an analyst on aggregate say buy or sell, that's a very bad performer. What analysts are very good at is um, looking at the trend in their earnings. If they've been revising their earnings more up um, or down versus the peers of those companies, that is a very good predictor in the long term. And that tends to be forward-looking because the data we're using for our analyst sentiment is actually their forward um, estimates one year forward. Um, so th we think it's absolutely essential to take um, a sound economic rationale view on why we think these factors perform. And I'll also talk, touch on another risk premium that we all know about. Um, we all know it provides inflation-beating returns in the long term. Knowing about it hasn't made the, that aspect, the equity risk premium, go away. Different year and year, the equity asset class performs differently. In the long term, you can deliver, you can obtain inflation-beating returns, but just knowing about it hasn't made that disappear. So it's about understanding why those factors are performing and believing in that economic rationale persisting going forward. Thanks, Anne. I think we had one, one year at the front. So, okay, my question is, will you consider the strategies to be index enhanced strategies or maybe alternative beta in the sense that they're not agnostic yeah. uh, uh, to, to the benchmark? So this specific fund that we showed here is an index cognizant. And I would put it in more the enhanced index kind of category because the client had a very tight um, tracking error um, mandate, max 2%. Um, but what, when we're building these factor portfolios, we think you do have to be cognizant of the index regardless because you can say a lot of negatives about the index, but it is a decent proxy of the liquidity of our market. NASPERS is the most liquid company, um, a representation of our market. Yes, it's not perfect, but when you're trying and when the client's objective is, we're going to assess whether you can provide alpha relative to the index, then you need to bring the index at the heart of your investment process. It depends on the client's objective. Um, if the client is saying, we don't care about the index, just build us a very high... Um, a portfolio that will give you good performance, that's a different thinking. But again, you'll still have to take account of the liquidity of the different stocks in our market. And we think the index still represents that to some extent.
Any further questions or follow-ups? All right. I think, Anne, that's that's great. I think it's been a great uh, overview. I think this is this is quite a, a key topic, and I, I'm sure we'll see a lot of development, um, you know, in this particular space. And hopefully, you know, people get used to um, and 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 these types of uh, strategies. What's clear to me, and I'm sure everyone will agree here, is, you know, the thinking that maybe passive or these types of strategies is simple. I think is it's not. It's uh, you, you know the kind of uh, rationale, the quality of research, what you need to do to actually implement this in practice, it's quite sophisticated. And I think there's, there's a lot to be, you know, said about that. Um, but I think given that we've got, you know, a few more minutes, I'm going to leave it to you maybe for last words. Um, you know, if there's any further things based on the discussion, key messages you'd like to, to leave with the, with the audience. At least in my opinion, I think fact investing is simple. Um, simple in the sense that all we're doing is we're taking a systematic rules-based approach to delivering on our clients' objectives. Um, one of the key um, outputs I would hope that you get from this um, presentation is that the South African equity market is not unique. Um, the market concentration in our market is not something that is only an issue for factor managers, it's an issue for all of us as we prove that we can provide alpha to our clients. And um, yes, the research behind this can be complicated, but the outcome for the clients and the understanding of why we picked a company in a specific sector should be um, clear. Thank you. Well, um, ladies and gents, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the sessions. Just a reminder, the presentations and papers will also be available um, afterwards. And you're more than welcome to obviously uh, contact both Anne as well as Sean uh, if you'd like to get a lot more detail. Well, thanks a lot for your time. I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference.